0: Welcome to Stratford Lutherans Sermon Podcast. I am Pastor Alex and this is a podcast that each week will deliver a new sermon message. These are taken directly from our ongoing sermon series and you can find them in on YouTube if you would like to watch them, but these are here for your listening pleasure. And I am so thankful that you have taken this opportunity to hear this particular sermon. And as always, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. I am on Instagram at quorum.dale.life. You can reach me at Undying Light Ministries as I host that podcast, Undying Light. And I'm a co-host of a Matter of Truth podcast. This is just a means to allow my sermons to uh, be listened to at your convenience as a listener. And again, I just want to say I am very appreciative of you taking this opportunity to listen. Now, here's this week's sermon.
1: The first lesson for today is taken from Isaiah, the 49th chapter, beginning with the first verse. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me, he made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. The servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is the word of the Lord. Your responsive reading is taken from Psalm 40. Please respond as indicated in your bulletin. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. He does not turn to the ground, to those who go astray after a Lord. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them yet they are more than can be told. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not given your deliverance within my heart, but I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation, but I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me, your steadfast love, and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. The second lesson is taken from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, beginning with the first verse. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus,
0: Before we begin our sermon, I'd like to call all of the children forward for the children's sermon. If you would please rise for the reading of the gospel. The next day when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness of this, that this is the Son of God. The Gospel of our Lord. Maybe seated. As I was growing up, I was uh, infatuated with playing sports, and I don't generally talk about sports as an analogy, but this one particular incident I think really kind of uh, pays well for this sermon. I was walking uh, to a baseball game. I was probably about 12, 13 years old. I was still pretty young. Uh, I played baseball all the way up till high school, and I wasn't very good, but uh, I enjoyed playing the game. But as I was logging my equipment to the dugout, uh, I hear uh, there's another game going on right next to where I'm heading. and and uh, the pitcher throws the ball, and I hear the ding of the bat, and I hear the crowds yell, heads up. So I look up, and I got hit in the head with the ball. <laughs> of all the places to be and all the places to stand, I was in the worst one. It knocked me out cold, and uh, I was unable to play that game. But I still remember that, that, that one incident, and, and this was, like I said, probably 20-plus years ago. But I remember, to the detail, walking to the field, and then I don't remember anything after that. But see, when somebody yells, heads up, what do we do? We either can cower in fear or we can, oh, look and see what's going on. Or when somebody yells, hey, look over there, what do we do? We turn and look. See these proclamations of of, of attention getters are prevalent in today's society not only just to ensure that somebody sees something unusual going on, but but for safety as well, the heads-up type yelling that can be had. But I thought John's proclamation, and I really wish if we could put it all in caps inside the Bible and, and make it even a bigger font and make it bold and maybe even a different color, just to really highlight John just bellowing out, BEHOLD! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That to me is a proclamation that echoes through time because up until this point, this promised Messiah had only ever been a promise, one that the prophets kept pointing forward to and Israel kept waiting upon. But now that John the Baptist is out baptizing with water, he turns and makes the statement that shatters the paradigms of reality. Hearing these words from John no doubt caused the people to wonder what is going on. Turning around and looking at all different directions, what is he talking about? Behold the Lamb of God? In fact, if the crowds were big enough, I'm sure those in the back would try to actively push themselves forward, trying to catch a glimpse of this new person. I just want you to ponder this. If you were in this first century Israel and you've heard the teachings every week in the synagogue, you've heard the prophets being read, you've heard of this promised Messiah through all of these Pharisees and scribes who would preach to you, you, you have kind of a very general understanding that a Messiah was to come at some point. But then you hear this guy in the wilderness preaching. And if we talked about John during the Christmas season, he was not in the best attire to preach. Nowadays, you see preachers up in their nice, you know, couple thousand dollar suits, and they've got the nice little pocket squares and the tie that matches, and they're, you know, really uh, extravagant looking, their nice watches and fancy shoes. And and John's out here in, in camel leather, just barely probably covering himself, and he's eating honey and locusts. Eh, we talked about that, and I made the notion that I don't think that would be a diet worth a, a trying. I, I like our more modern, civilized food, not locusts. I do like honey, but, but it's interesting, because if you put yourself in this, in, this, in this kind of boat, and you go out into the wilderness, you see this guy preaching, I would venture to say that amongst the crowd, there were probably people who were disgruntled. Because if we go back to what John said, when the Pharisees show up to hear him preaching, we know the crowds have got to be a sizable group to catch their attention. And John turns and calls them a brood of vipers. It's a pretty deep insult. And so I'm sure John's not out actively making a great name for himself. And so you have to go out and you have to hear what he's speaking of. You have to hear this for yourself. You've heard other people talk about it. But now you go out and you hear it. And so you just happen to show up on this day of all days when John is bellowing out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a moment that would be to be amongst the crowd hearing these words from John wondering how can this lamb because you know, if we take things very literal, in the sacrificial system, lambs were used to atone for sin. But how could a lamb take away all of the sin in all the world? Because up until this point, if we go back to the Levitical sacrificial system, each animal sacrifice was designed to only take away one sin, It was only used to atone for one thing. If you did something wrong, there would be a list of animals that you could sacrifice to atone for that. The bigger the animal, the worse the sin. But here we have this lamb who now is being told that this lamb takes away all of the sin of all the world. And this is the phrase that I'm absolutely captivated by. It's this very statement, I think, that sets the tone for the entire New Testament. And it changes the course of all of theology. It changes the course of all of church history because upon the church rests this statement. And there's so much comfort that can be found in the remembrance and the reminding of what John is saying here. We haven't even really gotten yet to the first beginnings of Jesus' teaching. We're We're still setting this stage. But here John is essentially, right as his opening act is closing, he's saying, Now I will bring to you the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God. And as I continue to finish my seminary studies, I'm very, 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 very close to completing my master's. I had the opportunity this past uh, December to write a wonderful paper on uh, Greek words. And I won't get into all the schematics of Greek and parsing and all that. That's all (laughs) academical stuff. But I had to take a word in the Greek and I had to translate it to English. And then I had to argue the meaning of that word from Greek to English and how it's used in the English. And so I took this very verse, John 1.29... And I argued this verse out from the Greek into English. And the focus of that paper was not the entire verse, but the one single word towards the very end, world. This word carries a lot of significant importance within the church. If I were to ask you in a pop quiz session, who did Jesus die for? You don't have to answer me now, but rhetorically, who did Jesus die for? Did he die for all of the world? Did he die for just the elect? Did he die for everybody just in that known area of the Roman Empire? Because in the Roman culture, the world was their entire empire. Everything outside of it wasn't their concern. So we have really three major views that could be applied to how John uses this word. Now, maybe about four plus years ago, I would have debated that Jesus only did die for the elect, that that being those who believe in Jesus. His death couldn't possibly cover all of the sins in the world through all time. It just isn't logical. Jesus only died for those who believe. Which, if you start to understand and build out that logic, it really goes against this text. And this is probably one thing why I'm really just, I'm held captive by what John says here. Because in this now understanding that I have, I missed the beauty of, of this portion of John's Gospel. I missed God's mercy showing up in full force in the person of Jesus. This theological kind of construction that I had built around myself that it was only the elect, only those who believe, and I would use parts of verses and other things to help support my my doctrinal statement, but it falls apart when you start to understand the meanings behind the words that were written. Now, I don't get into it very often, and I, and I won't ever get into it very often because it's not something for the pulpit to be held at, but I do want to make a notion of this Greek word that's found in this passage, and that is cosmos. Pretty similar, similar word. I'm sure many of you have probably heard it used in your lifetime. But it's a word that is known to associate the known universe everything that is created. And this word cosmos is not just used in verse 129, but it's used throughout all of John's letters. Now, people, as I mentioned, like to argue and debate while John is not really talking about the whole cosmos. He's not talking about all of the known universe. He's only talking about what was known in that time period. Which, if we, again, work this out theologically, then we fall apart because... We weren't a part of that time period. So how could that possibly be for us today? That theological framework crumbles in on itself. And so as I started to have my paradigms shifted and just really the walls that I had built shattered, I my professor uses the analogy when we first started seminary of we would come into school with a theological backpack. And in that backpack was everything that we were taught to believe and everything that we were Uh, conditioned to say. And by the time I was done with my first class, the Reformation class, I had probably discarded everything out of my backpack. It had all gone to rubbish because every argument, and every belief that I had had been completely constructed and now has been shifted. And so when I once believed that Jesus only could have died for so many people, I now look at this text and say, well, John obviously means the world. That's what the Greek here means. And every time I see this Greek word show up and I see how it is being defined, it literally means the known universe. Everything that is created. Now that's comforting. Because if we sit here and say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos. Everything known comes to Christ. And this is how John uses this word throughout his writings to describe who Jesus is, this blameless lamb, the spotless lamb, the one who comes to take away the sins of this world. If you can't tell, I really had a lot of fun writing this paper. It was probably one of my most enjoyable papers I've written thus far in seminary. Not just because I got to argue a theological standpoint, but because I got to use these verses that had just completely changed my entire views of Scripture. Martin Luther was one who, as we've talked about in the past, it really hung upon Romans 1, 16 and 17. Those were like his bread and butter. We are justified by faith. And then as he goes on to other writings from Paul, Luther would continue to make this statement, the justification is found in our faith alone. So everybody, every theologian kind of has a verse that they just are kind of grafted to in their, in their time. And I just keep coming back to this one single verse, John one twenty nine, because to me it holds so much weight because the beauty is often missed. We just sometimes in our in our daily reading, we'll just read John one one through eighteen, and we get to this, you know, the prologue, and we you know we've heard about Jesus being the light of the world, and you know then we move on. Okay, John's paving the way for Jesus, and then we move on to the earliest of Jesus's ministry, and then he's always oh, with Nicodemus now, and so on and so forth. And sometimes we 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 just try to go through the words just so we can check that box off at the end of the day, saying eh, I read that, I know what I. am I know what he's saying. But to dwell on these passages is something I find to be so important in the Christian life. And it's not something that we have to, again, sit here and contrive a a big old scheme of how we're going to get to each word and and dwell on it and do all of these Greek word studies. You don't have to do any of that. But when you get to these verses, I, I do encourage you to just meditate on it. Pray on it. Sit on this verse, especially the 29th verse here. The rest of what John goes on to say is wonderful because it starts to add the, the fulfillment of what we heard about leading into Christmas. That this is the man whose sandal I am unworthy to, to, to untie. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This one verse carries so much importance for the Christian faith. But I think sometimes we can get lost in those weeds of theology, and we can try and build out this sort of ideology or something that we might try and and, and build into our own minds of, "Well, this is this is the God I want." So I asked my confirmand students this past week. I said, "If you were to design your own God, what would the characteristics of that God be?" And it took a little poking and prodding to get some answers, but it was quite fascinating to see these young students start to build out this kind of perfect God. And this notion that I noticed across all of the descriptions was how good this God would be. Everything listed is a loving and caring and overjoyful, always happy Loving God, and that's wonderful. But one thing I noticed we didn't pick up on was a God that is also merciful while demonstrating righteous judgment. One who shows his love as well as his wrath towards sin. See, when we start to build this God with our own desires and our own minds, we lose sight of the biblical God and what he's revealed to us. We want to avoid any sort of attribute that might call upon the sin in our lives. We try to, "Ah, God's not going to do that. He didn't really say that in the Bible. I need to make a God that can justify my sin. This kind of reminds me, if we turn back to the book of Exodus, as Moses is leading Israel out of Egypt when we get into the desert Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, he comes down to find what? Aaron, who was the chief priest in the time, the first chief priest, in all of Israel making a golden calf. And they come to Moses and they say, look what we've done. We, we've built something that we can worship now. We have a physical object that we can worship and we can, we can call this God. I mean, this is like the basic definition of idol worship. Creating something and the likes of something else to worship. Now, I would have to say that I don't think any of us have a golden calf in our homes that we go home and worship. I would hope not. If you do, then we should probably have a conversation after church. But when we start to think about idols and idol worship in our lives, we, we, we think, okay, well, I don't actually bow down and worship these things. But think about it like this, and I've talked about it in times past, and so we won't get too deep into it, but you know, the money that we make can become an idol. We want more money, we want more money, we want better retirements, we want better savings account benefits, we want better credit card benefits. Money can become an idol very quickly. Our careers, even though for those who are retired, we have hobbies and interests and things that we like to do. Those things can easily become our idols. For those who have children, grandchildren, brothers, sisters, parents, nieces, nephews, all the sorts, our family could become an idol. Now, here is the interesting thought, and I, and I, Janae, and I had this conversation earlier this week, and I asked her, I said, "I need you to tell me just kind of a maybe." a different view of things that we make an an idol in our life. Something that I don't really often talk about. And and instantly she she comes up, well, social media. And I might have mentioned it in the past, but I I got to thinking, boy, especially in the people in my age group, how easy it is to make social media an idol. Nowadays, these platforms are paying people to make videos, and these videos are not educational, they're pretty much just entertainment. It, it's there to, to numb the viewer's mind. And they're getting paid lots and lots of money for it. And so, as this industry is growing and millions and millions of people are being attracted to especially the young crowd, it becomes an idol. And it becomes something that is taking our attention away from the finer and more important things in this life. Outside of the social media, things that we have collected or games that we play in this life, if you are an avid collector of something, that can easily become an idol. I know that Janae and I would probably be first in line to say sleep becomes an idol with two young children something that we cherish so deeply each night and hope and pray before we go to bed that we can get a full night's rest. Last night was a good night, so. But I want to turn our attention away from these these things that can become an idol in our life. Because we can sit and I can harp on them and dwell on them and, and call to light to all these things. But we do it so often that it takes us out of the scope of what the passage is saying. If I just sit here and harp on these sins and then dismiss you, it's going to be a pretty rough week for you. So I want to draw our attention back to the Lamb of God. And this is what John continues to say as he uh, Jesus shows up on the scene and he takes this sin as being taken away from us. I had an interesting connecting thought, and we know that theologically there's this thread woven between uh, the two the destructive plagues in Egypt, and Jesus, the Passover lamb. And so if we go back to the 10th plague, which was the Passover night, the first night of that, the Israelites were instructed to kill a spotless and unblemished lamb and then smear the blood on the doorframe of their house. They did this so that the angel of death would go over their house, pass over their home. And then the angel of death would go on into Egypt and kill all of the firstborn male children. Pretty interesting connecting piece that we now have this lamb in our eyesight. This spotless and perfect lamb. The one who only can take our sins from us. John makes it very clear, not just in this passage, but numerous other passages, that it is in Christ alone that our sins are forgiven. He is the only one who could wash us clean. This man whom John has told you about before, he comes after me, he ranks before me. He comes to baptize you with the Spirit while I can only baptize you with water. But notice how John finishes this statement. He says, this is the Son of God. John recognizes the deity of Christ, the second person in the triune Godhead. The word of God made flesh to dwell among us. This is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, to one you have been waiting for. I kind of feel like this is a fitting sermon to maybe preach in around Christmas or even Easter. But, and, I, and I sometimes think maybe the depths of this proclamation can go unnoticed just on a regular Sunday. But this is the trumpet blast that we sound in this church. That this is the message forward into 2023. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because it is only through Christ. It is not through your good works, your good merits, your your best behavior, your attempts to uphold the law, your attempts to do away with your idols. None of that. It is only in Christ alone. And as we will quickly come up to and we will go through all of the steps of Jesus leading into Jerusalem. And then the, uh, Holy Week or Passion Week, we get into the death and resurrection of Christ. Which, by the way, is a second reminder. We will be having Good Friday service here. And I will be preaching it. So I am very excited for that week. But see, what happens is we will pay attention. This sermon today is so connected to that night. Because on that night, your sins were hammered to a cross. And this is the very man who does it. He takes every single sin. Not just ones you've committed in your life up to this point. Not just some that you can admit to. Because if you remember in the absolution and confession, we often talk about things known and unknown because we often forget about what we've actually done. But he takes all the sin, all the laziness, all of the idols, all the addictions, everything, and it is killed and buried on the cross. You are now free because of Jesus. And this is the message that John proclaims. He bellows it out from the top of his lungs. Behold, He doesn't yell, heads up or look out. He yells, behold, attention, everybody, look to this point. Look to where I'm speaking. Right here, this man, this person who is coming to me is the the Lamb of God. He is the one I've told you all about and I've been telling you all about for weeks. This is the Son of God. Here is Christ who takes away the sin of the world. And so as we go forward into this year, this this construct, this message, will be, behold, Christ, the Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. And not just the sin of the world, but for each and every one of you. This is Christ for you. The man who comes to us in the bread and wine, who is present in our baptism, the man who is constantly in our lives, Jesus Christ, As I made a notion on Christmas Eve that when he went and ascended to heaven, the deity of Christ, the humanness of Christ did not separate from the deity. Jesus was not a human only for a temporary time, but he is still man, fully man, fully God. That is the God we serve. And that is the God we will always continue to serve in this church. And the one that we will always proclaim and bellow out from the top of our lungs. This is Christ for you. Thank you for tuning in to another sermon brought to you by Pastor Alex at Stratford Evangelical Lutheran Church. If you have enjoyed these sermons and you are interested in helping support our church, you can do so by going to stratfordlutheran.org and clicking on the About Us tab. Then you will see a little link that says Support Our Church. You can click on that and it'll bring you to a page called Vanco and you can sign in and create an account, and you can either do a one-time gift or you can set up recurring gifts. It's easy, it's convenient, it's secure. It's what we've been using for the last four years in our church for our online giving platform. So we would ask you to prayerfully consider helping support our church as we continue to provide you godly centered content in the years to come. Thank you once again for listening, and God bless.